The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 112. Captain DeBridge, Spock here. Make it so. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the original series episode called Dagger of the Mind. Joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. Howdy, Dom. Coming from my new house in scenic Fort Shaw, Montana. Nice, Fort Shaw. That's on the Wyoming side of the state, right? Oh, no, it's right in the middle. It's actually closer to Idaho than I think than Wyoming. Oh, right, right. Is Wyoming to your east? South. South. Okay. I, <laughs> Dom obviously I hang my know, head in uh, shame. Western geography. <laughs> it's all that flyover country. No, no, no. I, 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 it's all those rectangular states. Are like I have trouble keeping them straight. Uh, I need to dig myself out of this hole quickly by switching to hello, Jimmy Aiken. Welcome to the show again. Hey, really, really great to be here on Secrets of Columbo. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, really, enjoyed watching, really enjoyed watching the Columbo episode, Dagger of the Mind. It was neat <laughs> to see Columbo go over to England and do all these English things. And Was that an actual episode title? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Oh, that's funny. Um, it, Columbo goes to England and they have um, lots of shots of famous British landmarks and stuff, which is their way of kind of doing a 1970s travelogue for people who will who wouldn't be able to afford to go to England. Okay. Well, the the title Dagger of the Mind is a Shakespeare it's reference. It's also yes, so it's English too. <laughs> it's from Macbeth where Macbeth is uh on his way to commit a murder and he see he hallucinates a dagger in front of him guiding him down the hallway to commit the murder. And he's wondering, is it a real dagger or just a dagger of the mind? Yes. Uh, the uh, Is this a dagger which I see before me? It's a famous line, actually, which yeah. it, uh, people should know, uh, or if taken high school English. <laughs> so, uh, a, uh, proceeding from the heat-oppressed obs- heat brain, which, uh, given that it's summer where, while we're recording this and I was out in the heat, I can understand maybe hallucinating a dagger before me. Uh, so, But they never actually used the phrase in the episode where we're, we're to... Uh, kind of yeah. get the idea from this. So uh, just to kind of set the stage, what what are we talking about? So Dagger of the Mind is a first season episode. Uh, it's uh, It was the ninth episode aired, uh, although the, uh, we should remind people that the the air, the order of original of the original series first season is sort of open to interpretation, which what's the correct order to watch them in. Um, but we're kind of going from the original production airing order. It, it's it's really a mess because, you know, NBC just kind of said, oh, let's throw this one here and throw that one there and throw another one over here. And <laughs> yeah, so we're so if you if you're trying to follow along and you're like, what what order are these guys going in? We're going off of uh, the, the the listing that's actually on the Memory Alpha wiki, the the star, the, the most popular Star Trek fan Wikipedia. Uh, well, I mean, wiki 
out there. So that's what we're going from. So anyway, this uh, episode is the, the basic plot is that on a routine visit to the Tantalus penal colony. Dum, uh, dum, dum. <laughs> there's a uh, danger for Kirk and an Enterprise psychiatrist there. Yeah, and Tantalus, just right off the bat, is such an ominous name. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> it's because it's from Greek mythology. Tantalus was a mythological figure who, I believe he was a son of Zeus, but he was condemned to Tartarus, which was the pit in Hades. So it's not, yes. a, not, just the land, not just Hades, not just the underworld. It's the pit. It's the bad in Hades, one. Hades, <laughs> the really yeah. bad place. And he was condemned. This is where we get the word tantalize. Yep. Uh, he was condemned to be up to his neck in water with a tr like tree branch with fruit hanging just above his head. But if he would strain upwards to eat the fruit, the, the branch would withdraw so he couldn't eat the fruit. And if he bent down to drink the water, the water level would recede so he couldn't. So he was forever being tempted to eat and to drink. But Ugh. could not for all wow. eternity. That just sounds horrific. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's meant to be. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he's being punished. So it's interesting that they've named this penal colony Tantalus, uh, or at least, or maybe it's on a planet they called Tantalus. Uh, Tantalus 5, yeah. Yeah. So the, the episode was written by the screenwriter. His name is Shimon Winselberg. Uh, they, they use a the pseudonym uh, because um, they didn't yeah. let S. Bar David. Yeah, the the obvious Jewish names were, were it was that time. It was a time when we didn't do things like, like that. So, like Bar David isn't obviously Jewish. <laughs> I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very strange. But um, he apparently incorporated several references to Jewish parables into the script. But what? But the reference I saw to that didn't say what one. they were. Well, no, I I I only caught one. Um, okay, and it's not a parable. It's a historic account. I mean, to the extent that stuff in the Talmud is historical. Um, right. The legend goes, or the Talmudic account goes, that a Roman soldier came to Rabbi Shammai. There were two major rabbinical schools. There are these first century rabbis known as Hillel and Shammai that became founders of these two schools of thought. And, and um, a Roman soldier comes to uh, Shammai, who is the stricter of the two rabbis, and says, I'll convert to Judaism if you can explain the Talmud to me while standing on one foot, or if you can teach me the Talmud while standing on one foot. And Shammai's reaction is, oh, that's absurd, go away. Uh -huh. And so he goes away. But then he goes to Rabbi Hillel, who is the more liberal, open-minded of the rabbis, and he makes him the same offer. He says, I'll convert to Judaism if you can explain the Talmud to me while I stand on one foot. And, and uh, if you can explain the Torah to me, that's the first five books of the Bible. If you can explain the Torah to me while I stand on one foot, well, there's a lot of laws. I mean, traditionally, there's 613 laws in the uh, right. in the Torah. So how do you do that while a guy is standing on one foot? Well, the Roman soldier hops on one foot, and Hillel says, "What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. All the rest is commentary. Now go and learn." Oh, interesting. So nice. this is very similar to Jesus's statement yep. that, uh, and Paul's statement that following the golden rule, what you, what you want people to do to you, do unto others, that's, that's the essence of the law and the prophets. And everything else is just an elaboration of that. 
And so Dr. Adams is doing unto others what he wouldn't want done unto him in that I sense. think he's violating the golden rule. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so let's get into this. Uh, we, we start with uh, the transporter room on the Enterprise, and uh, we have a close-up on a package being transported down. Uh, it says uh, on the label, infrasensory drugs to be delivered to Dr. Tristan Adams. And I thought it was interesting. You could tell, uh, you know, in these in these modern, really cleaned up versions of the of the of the uh, video, that the doctor was pasted on. It was like a label that was yep. pasted on over it. I I really want to know what was under it. <laughs> what they hmm. had originally there was it Mister? Was it Professor? I don't know. But uh, and there were other packages as well being transported down. And for some reason, the transporter chief has forgotten that uh, oh. sh- shields have to be lowered when transporting to or from a penal colony. This is so painful from a writing perspective, because they want to communicate to the audience that a prison planet has security procedures with a force field around it. Yes. You could do that in so many ways. You could have the the transporter tech talking to the planet below, saying, okay, we need you to lower a hole in your force field right now so we can beam this stuff down. Yes. That's all you need to do. Instead, Kirk, the the transporter guy is trying to transport the things down, and they're not going down. And so Kirk comes in and transporter shames him <laughs> about this is a prison planet, you idiot crewman. Go yes. review the regulations. Well, and it, there, this is wrong on so many levels. Why didn't why didn't the force field show up on whatever preliminary scan must be done before every transport? Right. Why didn't why didn't we have radio contact with the prison planet before beaming down cargo? Are you in the habit of just beaming down cargo without notifying even on non-prison planets? Beaming down cargo without talking to people first about when and where it's coming? Right. Well, you, you had to have the you had to have the scene where Kirk was being shown as the wise, knowledgeable, patient leader of the enterprise right. and this was a way to do it with these poor engineer or poor uh, transporter techs who forgot their procedures. It's a character moment that they're trying to put in there, but it's so awkwardly done that it just, it makes Kirk look bad, a bad captain, if his crew is so poorly trained as they don't know what to do here. Uh, so anyway, they beam this stuff down, and then they beam up some research materials bound for the Central Bureau of Penology at Stockholm. I like how it's in Stockholm. Yes. I, I, I don't like how there's a stowaway in the box that apparently was not picked up on scanners. Right. Well, I was going to say research material. This is the biggest thumb drive ever. <laughs> like, <laughs> like what? It's like it's it's obviously, you know, it's the 60s, so everything is assumed to be paper. But it's this huge man-sized box, right? Yeah, I was going to say, you got to uh, remember when, the, you know, all their computer data logs are all on little cartridges, you know? Yes. So, I mean, you could kind of imagine uh, for the time that that would make sense, but. Right. And Jimmy, I, I, I made a note. They ought to include in the penal colony security procedures scanning cargo for life signs. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's the equivalent of the prisoner hiding in the laundry truck as it drives out of the prison yard. You know, that, that sort of silly thing. Yep. Uh, but anyway, he ends up disabling the, the transporter technician uh, and escaping into the ship. So then the, uh, the Enterprise leaves orbit and uh, Kirk and McCoy are on the bridge discussing this Dr. Tristan Adams and how his theories have changed penal colonies to make them more oh. like resorts and spas in the enlightened future. Yet now, now that's kind of interesting because it plays into what was going on in the '60s, where there yeah. was this huge focus on rehabilitation, and we're going to rehabilitate all these criminals, and it didn't exactly work out that well. But 
that was kind of in the air for the time. And so that's fine. I can accept that. But what I don't like is the fact that Dr. Adams, who we haven't met yet, is another galaxy-changing super genius who revolutionized his field. Right. Just just like Roger Corby was in What Are Little Girls Made Of? And what Dr. I forget is Dr. Daystrom is going to be in The Ultimate Computer. And it's like, we keep running into the galaxy-changing super geniuses who revolutionize their own field. This is so improbable. How but, about he's a smart guy who does penology? Right. Well, and the, they they revolutionize their field, but then they've gone wrong, and the Enterprise has to fix them. You know, in yeah. some way. Um, yeah. And um, uh, there was something I was going to say. Uh, oh, speaking of like the '60s and being, you know, the the time when we want to change, you know, rehabilitate prisoners instead of just imprison them. We actually kind of ran into this in the other show that we do together, Secrets of Doctor Who, uh, when we recently did the third Doctor story on the mind of evil, which took oh, yeah. place in a prison where it was a machine that was changing people into sort of um, childlike, zombie-ish, peaceful people. Uh, in, mm-hmm. it, which, it was a very similar thing, so I thought that was very interesting. Uh, so uh, th- they're contacted by the Tantalus colony and told that they've misplaced a violent inmate, and uh, maybe he's on your ship right now. Uh, and that's where we cut to the prisoner exchanging clothes with the crewman and the wild-eyed sweating guy running about doesn't look at all suspicious to the people passing him in the in the corridors i i do like how after they you know have this security alert to find the escaped guy a an armed guard comes onto the bridge yes and mccoy and kirk look at the guard and are kind of alarmed because you know for a second it's like oh security apparently sent this guy up without notifying them but that makes sense. I if if you have a security procedure, you're in an alert situation. Yes. Send an armed guard to the bridge makes total sense. That does. So does lock the door <laughs> to the bridge. Exactly. That will be a problem in a minute. <laughs> this was pre nine eleven, so nobody thought to lock the door to the bridge, and he's going to just waltz right in. So, in fact, uh, the inmate, the wild-eyed inmate, uh, disables a in the corridor. A hapless security guard takes his phaser. Man, they really got to retrain these red shirts. And uh, on the bridge, Spock pontificates to McCoy about how humans have glorified organized violence for 40 centuries, but imprisons those who employ it, while Vulcans disposed of emotions. So there's no more motive for violence among them. And I'm like, oh, really? I have a whole bunch of Star Trek episodes that say otherwise. Like, oh, I don't know, Amok Time, for instance. Well, none of those have been written yet, so. <laughs> yes, yeah. I just... I is uh, it was amusing uh, having Spock uh, b- being so superior there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this this guy, his name is Van Gelder. Uh, he arrives. You got to watch out for those Dutchmen. He arrives on the bridge and disables this security yeah, guard. They might burn down your Reichstag or something. <laughs> exactly. Uh, he uh, he disables the security guard who's guarding the door to the bridge with his back to it uh, by tapping him on the neck, as we do in Star Trek uh, original series. Demands to see the captain, and when he tries to ask for asylum, he starts convulsing for some reason. And he claims to be not an an inmate of the prison, but the director of Tantalus Colony and the assistant to Dr. Adams, and claims his memory was erased. And th- this is when Spock manages to get the drop on him and does the uh, Vulcan neck pinch and, uh, and knocks him out. On the bridge, Spock confirms that Van Gelder is a doctor and not an inmate. Yeah. Oh, he says there's a full ID tape on him. Yes. So we've got tapes in the future on people. 
<laughs> I like how, on at least on Babylon 5, Joe Straczynski realized we won't be using in the future whatever we're using now for memory, so he just right. made up data crystals. Right, exactly. And in fact, Star Trek uses them too, eventually, in the 90s. So Spock's on the bridge telling them this to McCoy and Kirk, who are in sickbay with Van Gelder. And then from Tantalus, Dr. Adams says that, uh, oh, yes, I'm so glad you found Dr. Van Gelder. He tried an experimental beam on himself. And McCoy says that doesn't ring true, but he can't say why. And Kirk dismisses McCoy like, oh, Adams' reputation is pristine. You shouldn't doubt him at all. Yeah. So a couple of things here. One of them is just an acting thing that I like, although I think it was scripted, but I really like the performance of the actor who's playing Simon Van Gelder. He's clearly got this memory block where he, as he approaches yeah. certain topics, he starts to hesitate and it's like he's in pain and he has to really fight to get out the next piece of information. And as the information gets more sensitive, he's having more and more freezes like that and more is in more and more pain. And finally, when he gets to information that's just too sensitive, that he just breaks down, he cannot get it out, and he breaks down in this kind of anguished laughter. And yep. I, it, because as a way of dealing with the pain, and there's that's psychologically plausible. You're, I mean, sometimes you're hurting so much, it's like it becomes this spasming laughter as a way to try to introduce some endorphins to take the edge off the pain. And so I liked that. I thought that was really cool. Also, I like Dr. Adams. We haven't met him physically at this point, but we're hearing him over the communicator. He's played by James Gregory. Yes. And I always get James Gregory confused with Jerry Harden. Yes. They're, yes. they're similar. Jerry Harden played Deep Throat on The X-Files. He also yep. played Mark Twain on Next Gen and Dr. Neria on Voyager's Emanations that we recently did. Mm -hmm. But he's different than James Gregory. James Gregory played Inspector Luger on Barney Miller. Yes, if you Frank remember Luger. that. Yeah. And Dr. Adams comes across, so we know based on just the setup, he's going to be the big bad for this episode. Right. The question is how do we go from alleged super genius who revolutionized his field and is a, has a pristine reputation to he's the big bad? And we as an audience can feel that coming. And suspicions are going to grow about him. And the question is, how is he going to respond as to the growing suspicions? Will he do it well or will he give himself away? Right. And he does it well. Yeah. He is, he is really, I mean, Roger Corby had a few things that where he, he would come back with reasonable responses, but Dr. Adams is like way better than that. He's, he anticipates. He's, he, he yeah he he seems reasonable all the way through until quite late in the game when he says yep. suddenly flips and becomes evil but all through this early part of the episode he is Mr. reasonable and cooperative and he sounds sincere and caring and as you say Dom he actually anticipates the questions that he's going to be asked like one of the th first things they do to see if it to because Simon Van Gelder has asked for asylum. He does not want to go right. back down. And Spock is like, well, maybe you should ask if, if he wants him back, you know, because that'll tell us if he, if, if he is a threat. It'll at least add some evidence. If he doesn't even right. want him back, we can grant his asylum. Right. 
and so they they ask him about that and and over the horn dr adams is like captain i wanted to ask about your patrol route because if there are any other facilities that you think would be better for simon van gelder that you're going to be passing close to i want him to have the best of care right and of course yeah mccoy pulls the rug out from under that privately to the captain saying he knows there aren't any that are better that was just a gambit yes uh and and then he says uh to kirk keeps putting him off like no obviously there's nothing going on here and so mccoy says look uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna put you in a corner i'm gonna put my doubts in my medical log which by regulations requires you to answer in your log so now you've got to deal with this you've got to investigate yeah and that sets up the episode i do want to take a moment you mentioned james gregory as the guest star this this is a great guest cast so james gregory is awesome and Mm -hmm. um Thomas uh, Morgan Woodward, uh, he, he's credited as Morgan Woodward, but he's, his full name is Thomas Morgan Woodward, uh, plays Van Gelder. He he's mm-hmm. shows up in the original series twice, first in this, and then in the Omega Glorious, Captain Tracy. Great, another great uh, actor. He, he actually just passed away last year, in February 2019, oh, wow. at 93. Mm. So, uh, you know, God rest his soul. But um, he, you may know him from the movie uh, Cool Hand Luke, where mm. he played Boss Gadf- Godfrey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that was a uh, one of his great. He was also in John Cassavetes' movie, 1976 movie, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, which is less well known, but uh, a classic. But anyway, mm-hmm. he he's one of these guys who's worked in many different things well, over the years. That's the amazing thing when you look at so many of the guest stars on Star Trek throughout the years. They're 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 actors that show up time and time and time again. You know, like the greatest compliment you could give an actor, especially someone who does a lot of the you know second level casting, is they work. Meaning exactly. they're such good actors mm-hmm. that maybe they're not, you know, the William Shatners or somebody like that, but they're constantly but they get a lot of producing yeah. new content, you know, so they're, they're, they're working. That's right. It's like Doctor Who is in, in the UK. That's, everyone shows up eventually on Star Trek or in Doctor Who. So it's really awesome. So, uh, yeah. So Kirk has this, this uh, dilemma. Now he has to investigate the Tantalus penal colony. And Dr. Adams says, oh, yeah, sure. Come on down. That's yeah. We'd love to have you come down. Uh, so Kirk is going to beam down to investigate along with someone from the medical staff who's got psychiatric and penology experience, who turns out to be this this uh, beautiful woman, of course, of course, because it's Kirk. And uh, it seems they have some when he sees her in the transporter room, uh, he's Kirk is a little thrown off. Um, he's really thrown. Yes. He, he, <laughs> something something having to do with the science lab Christmas party where something happened between him and this doctor, Dr. Helen Noel. Get it? Helen Noel from the Christmas party. Oh, oh yeah. It's <laughs> a yeah. little on the nose there. <laughs> and in thinking, now it's nice we have a reference to a Christmas party. Yes. But remember, this is the 1960s. This is Mad Men era in yes. the real world. So what kind of <laughs> office Christmas parties did they have? They weren't exactly <laughs> wholesome all the time. Right. Well, and we do so find out later the, what, what happens. And it, it, yes. it, it was very much a captain taking his prerogative. Might be <laughs> well, not, not they, completely, so, but yeah, there's sort of two. They they sort of have it both ways because this initial transporter room scene, and Kirk is implies, really uncomfortable. Yeah, it, it, if you knew nothing else, you would infer he went to bed with her, right? Yep. And had a one night stand. But later on, when she gives her account of what happened, they danced, and he talked about the stars, and that's it. And then she's going to suggest an alternative fantasy to him that didn't happen, where he swept her off her feet and took him took her back to his cabin. 
Yes. So they they kind of, and we see that fantasy for reasons we'll talk about, but but that's the fantasy. So they, on the one hand, we have Kirk dances with someone and talks about the stars, and then he's profoundly embarrassed by it later. That doesn't quite fit. Well, it sounded like it wasn't just dancing, you know, that they're, they're that they're they're kissing and possibly even making out. I mean, it was well. Sure, my guess okay, is maybe. that he That's probably drank too much, like like you were inferred, Jimmy. Like that that there was that kind of Christmas party. He and he probably uh, went went a little on a bit uh, and was in in an embarrassingly profuse way, especially being her captain, mm. uh, which he you would probably is not supposed to fraternize with her, and and that's probably what makes him uncomfortable. And I do like the fact that he. Uh, under his breath, vows revenge on McCoy if she's not the best possible person for the job. I, I like how McCoy described her as one of our psychiatrists, and it's like, just how many psychiatrists do you need for four hundred and thirty people? <laughs> well, deep space, yeah, maybe. The, and, I don't think how, how many enough. how many anomalies do they run into on a daily basis? I mean, that could really yeah. take a psychological toll. Yes. Well, they do suggest specials for every possible thing on board, uh, any script necessity. Anyway. They beam down to the surface and enter into this small building, which is apparently oh, they, the, the they enter into the lithium cracking station from Delta Vega, from where no man has gone before. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. They've reused the matte painting, uh, and that it turns out to be a very high speed elevator, which causes them to embrace in surprise, of course, uh, uh, which I, for some reason. And then uh, the, when they get to the bottom, Doctor Adams greets them and welcomes them. He says, "Welcome to Devil's Island," which is a reference to. A prison, eighteenth century or nineteenth century prison, um, a French. Mm, I think it, it operated for a while. I think yeah. it operated into the eighteen hundreds. So that okay. would be the yeah. maybe even later. That's where uh, Papillon is set, right? Yes, yes, and it's infamous as being like the most horrific sort of prison you could imagine. Uh, so uh, it, it, he's saying this in, in ironically, but maybe not so ironically. But he's he's very welcoming. He's cordial. He's urbane. He's accommodating. Let's uh, Kurt he, keep his phaser. Yep, yep. He says, you, you know, no, no, I, I, you got, you military men, you feel more comfortable, you know, holding on to those things. And, you know, it's very, like, putting, he's putting him at ease. A woman arrives. She's a former oh. inmate and therapist Admiral whose name Cornwell, is... Admiral Cornwell walks into yes. the room. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, this, this was the, 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 the question. Her name is Lethe, which is, uh, which means forgetfulness. It's a reference to a Greek myth of, uh, the river you drank from. Yes, yes, that that makes you forget. What was the what was the theory that the the sort of off the wall theory that so Cornwell so, is Lethe? Yeah, so Lethe is a woman. She she looks. She has a distinctive look. Yes, which is similar to Admiral Cornwell's look in from Star Discovery. Trek Discovery, which would have been about ten years before this. Yes, and Lethe. It's not her real name. It it means forgetfulness. She did some kind of crime, we don't know what, that landed her in Tantalus, and then she has been, like, made a new person by the rehabilitation. Part of that is she doesn't even talk about what her, she did before, because that was another person, that person is gone, and she has this creepy zombie reprogrammed thing going on that she's yep. working. And so then, in Star the first season of Star Trek Discovery, we have all of a sudden, in an episode called Lethe, <laughs> we have this Admiral Cornwell woman who's hooked up with this shady Captain... Lorca. What's his name? Lorca. Lorca. Yeah. And she's also a psychiatrist. 
which yes. Lethe is a psychiatrist. She's now a therapist on Tantalus. And that is really weird, letting former in- inmates become therapist workers at your <laughs> prison facility. Wow. Yeah. That's, a, that's not going to ever go wrong. But there were so many similarities, including just physically how they looked, that a lot of people thought uh, Admiral Cornwell is going to become Lethe. Yeah. She's going to she's going to commit some crime and be be imprisoned and become this character. And yeah. I wish they'd done that. And mm-hmm. I think that may have been their plan. In the second season, it ended up, it ended up not being the case. Right. But I think in the in the first season, it may have been the plan to have Admiral Cornwell become Lethe. Well, the only real, only di- dif- major difference feature-wise between the two of them was Lethe has black hair versus Cornwell has more brownish blonde hair. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. can explain that. Yeah, um, but but they part of their therapy. Doctor Adams explains is they encourage people to forget their past crimes, which is a markedly different strategy than today, where you want to integrate an, an awareness of what you did and take responsibility for it not just reprogram a person's personality so they don't even remember their crime. Right. And and Kirk finds it a little odd, but Dr. Noel, Noel Helen, uh, says uh, a shifting of memory patterns is basic to psychotherapy. Dr. Helen is a foolish obstructionist who is (laughs) entirely unsympathetic. I mean, originally it it was Kirk who was playing the role of the, oh, Dr. Adams is great, and McCoy was the skeptic. Yes. But now that Kirk's forced to investigate, he has to become the skeptic, which means we need a a new foolish denier. And that role lands on Dr. Noel, who is just, oh, Dr. Adams is great. Of course he's great. Blah, 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 blah. He's so great. (laughs) Well, but she does keep getting shut down, though. She does keep getting shut down, though. She tries to explain, and either Kirk will jump over her or Dr. Adams will jump over her. And I kept wondering whose side is she on? Like, yeah, <laughs> you were sent here to investigate as an impartial observer. You've already made your decision about what's going on based on Adams's reputation. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, next thing you're going to fall in love with Doctor Adams and go off to SETI Alpha Five with him. <laughs> <laughs> There's wrong, a problem with wrong the episode. personnel on the. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so on the tour, Kirk sees a room that Adams tries to walk past. Like, oh, don't, don't pay attention. That's just storage. Uh, but Kirk wants to see it, so. Adam says, oh, it's one of my experimental failures. And uh, when Kirk insists, Dr. Helen tries to dissuade the captain. Captain, you're being so rude on insisting. Like, quiet! <laughs> so, yeah. He's the captain. In fact, Adam sort of takes the, the captain's side that's privilege of being captain. You get to, you get to decide these things. Uh, so uh, he basically says that this is uh, the device is a neural neutralizer, uh, that it relaxes the patient's mind. But the effects are temporary, which is why it's a failure. And uh, they keep using it, hoping it'll do some good in the more violent cases. Uh, and at the same time, we intercut with Van Gelder back on the ship, raving about the neural neutralizer and not don't use it on me. And so we have this, you know, contrast. He, yeah, and he can't explain to Spock and McCoy, who were in sickbay, what a neural neutralizer is. So yes. I have in my notes. I feel a mind meld coming on. <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, the first one ever, in fact. But we'll we'll get there. Uh, so Kirk uh, asks the technician, the uh, oddly blank-looking and uh, lacking all-affect uh, technician, how it works. And Dr. Noel, again, assu- assures Kirk that while she's not familiar with equipment, it is clearly no danger to anyone. <laughs> like, how can you say this? You have no idea what it is. Well, uh, she says it's based on similar technology that's used elsewhere, although she's not familiar with the specifics of this model. Right, right. 
So, uh, but still, that's not enough of a basis to say no danger. Right. And Kirk does finally get Adam to admit that this is the technology that injured Van Gelder. So uh, he sort of had to draw, draw it out of him. Uh, when, when they leave, this uh, oddly unemotional and unblinking technician tells the guy in the chair that you will forget everything you've heard or, or you will experience excruciating pain as he turns up the bean. And I'm thinking, is this supposed to be like hypnosis or brainwashing, which was all the rage well, to talk about is, then? there is an interesting thing about hypnosis specifically. I mean, yes, this is brainwashing. Yeah. Which was a big deal. I mean, at the time, the CIA still had its MK Ultra experiments going on to try to find an effective way to brainwash people, including using painful techniques. Right. We've talked about that some on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World with the episode on the death of CIA scientist Frank Olson. Right. And we'll be talking about it more when we talk about MKUltra. We also talked about it in hypnosis. There's a funny thing, though, about hypnosis in this. Now, I'm, as people will know, not a huge fan of hypnosis. I think it's uh, a social role that people learn. It's not really what people claim it to be, which is this altered state of con profoundly altered state of consciousness. But in the 60s, there was a concern about this. So when we get to the mind meld, let me tell you the hypnosis story. Okay. Oh, I think I remember uh, seeing something about that. But yeah, that'll be good. So Kirk uh, communicates to Spock, who um, <laughs> waits until Adams leaves the room to speak freely. Like Kirk this, asks him this, something and Spock just goes silent. Yeah, this is this is. And then Adams takes the hand and leaves. Yeah. But this is great. I mean, communicators need a way to be taken off of speakerphone. <laughs> maybe, maybe some way to send text on a screen that you type in. Or a little thing you stick in your ear for privacy or which, something. Which we know they have because you were a swan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Spock and McCoy are being very cautious while Dr. Helen is vehemently on uh, Dr. Adams' side. Uh, so Kirk elects to stay overnight, like to to do some more uh, more poking around. Oh. And, Va and Van Gelder freaks out. He's like, "No, no, don't let them stay." <laughs> yeah, I mean, great again, great acting here. He yeah. just is so over the top, awesome. Uh, he throws himself into it. In fact, I think I read somewhere that the actor, like Morgan Woodward, actually had to take like three days off after filming this episode because it was four. so yeah, so emotionally draining. Um, so, uh, so this is when Spock decides to mind meld and this is the first, uh, so it's his first mind meld with a human, he says, mm -hmm. with Van Gelder. And it's the first mind meld in Star Trek, right? Yes. Yeah. This has never been done before. And to explain that Spock says, you know, cause if this was well known, why didn't McCoy just say, Hey, do a mind meld on him? Right. Well, Spock explains that this is a hidden personal thing. To Vulcans, it's part of our private lives, right? And that actually, now later, mind melds become so common, people forget that. Yes, but this is like an intensely private thing you don't talk about with outsiders, and that actually fits with some stuff they do far down the line in Enterprise, where the mind meld is kind of a shameful thing that not everybody does, right? And so this resonates with that as being you know, this personal secret thing you don't talk about. And so that actually fits very nicely with stuff down the line. But also because it's the first time this has ever happened, Spock is kind of explaining what's going to happen to McCoy and to Van Gelder. It's like, I'm going to touch him. And originally, apparently, he was supposed to like touch him in the torso, but they just did the head, which makes more sense. Yeah. 
there's some risk here. I'm going to be changing pressures in your blood vessels and your nerves and things like that. So you could have a stroke or something is the implication. And he also makes a point of telling Dr. McCoy, this will only affect the person I touch. This is not hypnosis. <laughs> and the reason they did all that and made that point so explicitly is because they didn't want to accidentally hypnotize people in the audience on television. <laughs> <laughs> so this will only affect the person I touch. This is not hypnosis. So they were big believers in hypnosis at this time and were actually scared that they might hypnotize someone in the audience. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't want people wandering out into the streets and the, you know, yeah. on, on a Thursday night watching uh, Star Trek on NBC. Uh, so, yeah, we have, so we're going to have like this mind mill kind of go back and forth a bit. But uh, in the midst of this, as Spock is preparing, Kirk shows up at Dr. Helen's uh, quarters, and she acts like he's coming for a date. She's like, oh, hi, Captain. It's after hours. Uh, we're going to, you know, uh, continue where we left off at the Christmas party, he, but he's all business. Like Kirk is on target here, and uh, so she's still defending Adams, but Kirk has his doubts. And this is where I I write in my notes: I do not like Doctor Helen. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I, I it's probably I not the liked actress her since the beginning. Yeah, yeah, it's probably not the actress, but the, I just think the characters because for the necessity of, like you said, Jimmy, Kirk now has to switch from being pro Doctor Adams to skeptical. She needed to be the foil, and and it, so it, it just but, necessarily makes her. I don't know if you can yeah. ma if you could have done but, this better, but yes, yes, you could have. Okay. She could be. I mean, you could have a Mulder Scully thing yes. where they're serving as foils to each other. At one moment, yeah. one of them is more favorable. At another moment, the other is more favorable, and they work their way through the problem together. Instead, she is just one note. Ding, right. ding, ding, ding. Everything <laughs> she says is pro-Dr. Van Gelder. She never has any doubts until suddenly he turns. Right, uh, Dr. Adams, yes. Dr. Adams, yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of uh, Van Gelder, uh, in, in his mind meld with Spock, we have, uh, he explains how the neural neutralizer works to erase memories and replace them with any thoughts that Dr. Adams chooses to place there, which sounds a lot like yeah. what people say hypnosis is. And it's it's interesting. It's kind of emptiness-based brainwashing. It like clears out everything in your mind so that you're lonely and receptive to any mental stimulation. Right. And that's how the brainwashing works. So back on the surface, now that we've heard this, that Kirk doesn't know, Kirk says, I'm going to put myself under the beam, which as the audience, we're going, oh, no, don't do that. That's the, it, it'll, you'll get hurt. But he's going to Remember go under what happened to Dr. Van Gelder. <laughs> yes. Uh, he's like, well, we'll do it, you know, very, very uh, slow, uh, you know, very low level. And Dr. Helen's at the controls. And so for the first try, he doesn't even realize anything's happened. His face kind of goes a little slack in the midst of it. But, uh, but you know, he doesn't, he, he's like, start any time you want. I, I just did it. Uh, so then the second time, he tells her to try a harmless suggestion. So she tells him he's hungry. And then as soon as it ends, like, you know, uh, whatever happens here, uh, let's go find a kitchen after this because I'm starving. <laughs> it's just yeah. kind of funny. And then uh, for the next try, he wants something unusual so that he knows that it's her suggestion and not him just being hungry. Uh, so she changes his memory of the Christmas party from him talking about the stars and carrying her off to his uh, to to, um, to a memory of him carrying her off to his cabin, uh, you yeah. know, for a for we think one night stand. 
And so her fake and, memory is about having Kirk being a cad on the make, basically. And that's supposed to be the unusual thing that we both know didn't happen. Right. Yes. Except uh, it's so in character for Kirk. Exactly. But, <laughs> but this is like in the fantasy, this is the most womanizing Kirk ever. Right. She's got, he's got her to his quarters in the fantasy. And she's like, you know, this would be easier if you told me you cared for me. Oh, yeah. And he says, what, do you want me to manufacture a lie that I care about you? <laughs> and meaning I totally don't care about you? Yeah. Do you want me to wrap up this? He says, do you want me to l wrap it up as a Christmas present for you? Because it's Christmas, get it? And yeah. it's like, ick, what the creepiest womanizingest Kirk ever. But this is her fantasy of him. <laughs> That's yeah, exactly. what makes it even well, double creepy. I that's sort of ambiguous. I mean, she just, all she, uh, her fantasy is just what she said to him, which is, you swept me off your feet and took me back to the quarters. What we're seeing here is what's in his head. Yeah. That he's manufactured based on her verbal instructions. I was, okay. I kind of interpreted it as she's, we don't hear it, but yeah. she's continuing to tell him what happened. That's, that uh, it could be. Just that, that's how so, I, read, I read it like Dom did, where it was, okay. we're seeing what she's telling him. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe, well, yeah. There, I, are I, there, yeah. there are people who get a charge out of kind of transgressional yeah. sex of, yeah. oh, yeah, it totally doesn't care about me, but yeah. we're going to do this. Yeah. And and, and yeah, I, I kind of got the sense that she was, I don't know, that she wanted she was wanting kind this. of domination fantasy. Yeah. that she was, Based on her other interactions with him, like being happy to see him when he came to her cabin, uh, you know, her quarters earlier uh, in this evening. So I, I kind of got the sense of that. She was she would have welcomed advances from him, but uh, anyway, Doctor Adams comes in and in, interrupts and takes over, and now we see him revealed in his full uh, bat, you know evilness. Uh, he he turns up the beam and tells Kirk, "You're madly in love with Helen, and you're willing to sacrifice anything for her. You must have her, or the pain and longing will grow worse." And Kirk is fighting against the beam, like he's he, he's because you know Kirk is our hero, so he's stronger than anyone else. Uh, with this, and so when Adam uh, Adams tries to cut him off from the Enterprise by giving up his communicator, Kirk fights back until he's incapacitated. So there's a and, and he has the same laughing, anguished breakdown that Van Gelder did earlier in the episode. Right, right. Uh, and then we come back from commercial break, or that's probably where the commercial break was. I think I, I remember as a kid. Yeah, because uh, I this this episode made a big impression on me when I was a kid. <laughs> it was really creepy. Now I have a question at this point. In my notes, uh -huh. what is because what happens is as Doctor um, Noel is testing this on Kirk and doing yeah. the Christmas party fantasy, Adams comes in with some assistants who just grab Doctor Noel, yes, and cranks up the machine to eleven and does this. You're madly in love, and suddenly she's gone. Right, you know, to have give this devastating blow to Kirk. And I'm like, what is the end game here? That's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Why is Doctor Adams doing this? I mean, what does he expect to get out of it? Well, he talks about having two of the great minds to be able to work on. Obviously, Doctor Van Gelder and Captain Kirk. So he's it's part mm. of his experiments. Is it's not like there's an end yeah. game to control Kirk. It's this is I've got another great mind that I can experiment on. If so, yeah. he's displaying re a remarkable lack of foresight because torturing a Starfleet captain is not going to go well. I mean, the the best thing he could do is 
give his dog and pony show to Kirk and Noel and say, see, nothing to see here. Yeah, we had this failed experiment. Dr. Van Gelder hurt himself with it. It's really sad. We're keeping some some further, we're keeping it active for further experimentation at a very low level, and we're not going to repeat what happened with Dr. Van Gelder. Please put all that in your log. Take Dr. Van Gelder wherever you need. See you later. Right. What is, what, that's the smart thing to do in this situation. How does torturing Kirk in this way, and they're planning on torturing Dr. Noel too, how is that going to get him what he wants, which is to be left alone by Starfleet? Well, this, um, or just the wipe thing, the memory. Right. Yeah. The, the only yeah. things I can think of is what his plan is to, is to break down both Kirk and Dr. Noel and implant post-hypnotic suggestions in them to where they can't talk about this and can't remember it and think about it. Right. But that plan is not going to go well because look at what happened with Simon Van Gelder. He was, <laughs> right. a, he was a stuttering, shambling, twitching, you know, wreck after what happened to him. Yeah. The only, only thing I, you know, I, I almost think you're thinking a little too deep. This is the stereotypical scientist who's so wrapped up in his, yeah. his studies, his research that nothing matters, which we've seen how many times in both Doctor Who and Star Trek? <laughs> right, Just that right. scientist, I don't care that the planet is blowing up. I must have my research. You know, that kind of scientist. Although Dr. Corby, at least, and uh, what are little girls made of, at least he had a plan. Like he was yep. going to replace Kirk and... That replacement Kirk was going to take him and his stuff to another place where they could continue their work. Yeah, Adams doesn't even have that much, but yeah, yeah, that's pro- it is a problem. It is a problem. So uh, Kirk wakes up with uh, Doctor Noel ministering to him in, in the quarters, and he starts telling her he loves her. Uh, but then he starts to remember what happened, and then there's this funny moment where he sees this unusually large air duct in the in the wall, uh, and starts to kind of stalk toward it. And she thinks he's stalking toward her. Uh, this is—it's just a kind of a comedic moment where she misunderstands his uh, oh, intent. Oh, I didn't take it as comedic. I thought she was genuinely afraid that he's about to assault her. Well, I mean, from the uh, from the audience viewpoint, like we know that he's going for the air duct behind her, and she's like, she's misinterpreting. Well, there's there's tension though because you can see it on her face where she's looking at him, like, yes. "What are you doing? What are you doing?" And then as his as his as his expression turns towards the vent, she kind of looks and goes, "Oh." <laughs> right, yeah. right. Uh, so this uh, unusually large air duct they have in the colony, in a, in a penal colony, why would you have such large? Never mind. Uh, so he sends her oh, into the air duct to find a power it, system yeah. to short circuit. Sci-fi cliche into the duct world. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Uh, so he wants to short circuit uh, the shield. And to ratchet up the drama, he asked her, do you have any, any experience reprogramming hyperpower relays? And she's yeah. like, nope. Well, you could kind of die. Anything's better than being subjected to Dr. Adams's ray. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Touch the wrong thing and you're dead. <laughs> okay. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Kirk is taken off for another treatment, and the bumbling guards don't notice that Dr. Helen isn't there anymore. But Lethe does. Oh, does she? That's right. Yeah, That's right. she comes in and reports. At, while Kirk is under the ray, Lethe comes in and says, Dr. Noel is gone. And 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 Adam starts pressuring Kirk to reveal right. what he knows, but he doesn't rat her out. Yes, he instead he yells, "There are four lights!" Oh no, I'm sorry, that's another one. That's another one. <laughs> uh, so 
Uh, Helen finds an uh, apparently ancient power substation. <laughs> oh, and it's so amazing that you have all of these ducts running through this prison facility that are easily accessible, and none of the other prisoners have ever <laughs> crawled through them to turn off the force field. Really? Yeah, yeah she uh, she does avoid some guards that have uh, they're searching for, her, and she turns off the power, which turns off the beam on that's blasting Kirk. Which lets Kirk escape by karate chopping Dr. Adams and his assistant. But the guard comes back and uh, fights with Dr. Noel, and he uh, disables her, turns the power back on, but when he turns to grab her, she kicks him into the high voltage and makes him a barbecued red shirt, basically. Yeah, electrocutes him to death. Meanwhile, up on the ship, Spock has been trying to break through the force field, and it hasn't been working. But now that she's got the power off, Yes. He can beam down and he does so alone for Without <laughs> reasons, but says, send a security team after me. Dude, you should have had one waiting there in the, on the transporter pad as you're trying to break through their force field. Exactly. But also because Kirk has escaped, the guards who were with Adams chase after him and Adams is left alone, unconscious on the floor of the, of the room with the ray. Right, and that's uh, significant because Spock beams, he beamed down to the location of where the power uh, was interrupted. So he goes to where Dr. Helen is, uh, and uh, she's, she's already gone. she's back in the ducks. Yes, yeah. she's already back in the ducks. So he shuts down, disables the force field controls, and then turns the main power back on. But w- because Adams is on the floor in the treatment room, treatment room under the beam, when it comes back on, unattended at full power, he's stuck under it being beamed uh, out of his mind. Relentlessly with no input. That's the key right. thing. He's, he's being brain-wiped with no new input. Right. So, so he's experiencing the extreme content deprivation. It's like when your Wi-Fi fails in a blackout. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> my phone! Where's my Facebook? So uh, Kirk, uh, still under the influence of the programming, is back in the quarters uh, thinking he's in love with Helen. So when she comes back to the room, he starts kissing her and then Spock comes in and shakes and, his and head. She, and she protests this isn't right. Yes. Because even though she wants Kirk, she doesn't want him because he's been programmed. Right? Yes. And so she protests it isn't right. And Spock comes in and has this confused, bemused expression. Yes. And we get the clarinet of humor <laughs> in do. the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Uh, but uh, reminded of Adams, uh, Kirk runs out of the room and goes back to the treatment room uh, where McCoy is there. Uh, and we have the famous line, he's dead, Captain. Uh, he doesn't say he's dead, Jim, but he does say he's dead, Captain. Uh, <laughs> and Kirk m- notes that Adams' mind was emptied without even a tormentor for company, which is an interesting uh, concept. Uh, so, uh, back on the ship, Van Gelder sends them a message from the colony, uh, that the neural neutralizer has been destroyed. He's apparently, uh, back in charge and, uh, himself mm-hmm. again. Uh, McCoy muses that it's hard to believe a man could die of loneliness, but Kirk says, not when you sat in that room, you know, that, that you could die of loneliness. Uh, so he's remembering what he's experienced. Uh, and, uh, that's where we end things. Uh, I do want to make a note that Dr. Helen was originally going to be Janice Rand. Accompanying yep. the uh, the captain, but they wanted to avoid her having become involved with Kirk again, especially in these somewhat involuntary way. And uh, it, there's a note uh, online which says that Grace Lee Whitney, who played Janice Rand, was having personal issues on set with some of the way they were portraying her character. 
which I think has to do with the uh, the enemy within episode where we have implications of forcible action against a, a woman by a man uh, in, in that, and uh, that she has said, since said she had trouble with. So uh, having this happen again would probably have been too much uh, for her. So um, so that was, yeah, so that's why it's uh, Dr. Helen. Uh, Which we would, actually makes more sense. Yeah. yeah, to have a, instead of a yeoman, have a actual psychiatrist or an expert uh, in these things, yes. Um, we were going to come back and talk about why we thought they call this uh, Tantalus, why the colony's called Tantalus. Oh, sure. What so do you I, think? I guess my, my thought was the, the idea of this, the, the, that the, the, the way that the mind light was going on was almost kind of this torture like the the torture of the you know trying to eat the fruit or drink the water you know because right. he used it was almost a mirror image pavlov's dog you know instead of you know the 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 bell signifying food signifying a treat instead it was the pain signifying something that was bad to avoid hmm. you know that's, yeah. that's, so that's, negative that's, reinforcement you yeah. know negative reinforcement so i, I think that was right. kind of part of it i mean just kind of you know my my, my thoughts anyways i don't know about you jimmy what do you think? I, I I think they just knew Tantalus was a scary sounding name from Greek mythology <laughs> that sounded kind of ominous, and so that's why they did it. I don't think it. I I don't. I at least I can't see any clear through line to why they would use that name given the content of the episode. Just like I also don't see any clear through line to why they would call this Dagger of the Mind because nobody's committing a murder in yeah. this and and debating about is this a real dagger or not i mean we do have a little bit of is this real or is this just fantasy and i'm not going to sing <laughs> bohemian rhapsody <laughs> easy come easy go yeah but yeah with with the kirk christmas party <laughs> fantasy uh mama i killed a man <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's just a little there's not enough there i think it's just oh we want a famous classy shakespearean sounding title that has something to do with the mind mm. for all the people who care to read tv guide and want to know what the episode is called there are a number of uh, shakespearean references in episode titles in uh, original series we got conscience of the king coming up which is yep a very much a shakespeare episode by the way that's much clearer why and that one actually has more to, I mean, it yeah. has more to do with the actual content of the play that's from, which yes. is Hamlet in that case. Yes, exactly. Uh, which is a really great episode, but uh, that's that's coming up. Father, did you have any added notes? Only thing I have to say is I think both Starfleet and Penal Colony security personnel need to be taught on how to do a, an effective security sweep. When somebody's just <laughs> hiding around a corner twice and they can't find <laughs> yeah. them. Yes, that is true. I had a couple extra notes. One of them is they. I, I find the security system they have for Tantalus Five interesting. It makes sense to me. You put up a force field because mm -hmm. you don't want prisoners beaming off the planet. Uh, it also makes sense to me that you have a security screen that blocks communications because initially Kirk, when he's in Doctor Adams's office, he flips open his communicator and Doctor Adams is like, uh, "I don't think you're going to be able to get through. I got to turn off this thing." And that makes sense, too, because you also don't want prisoners having unauthorized communications yep. with people above the planet on the outside because they could be milling escape plans or smuggling stuff or issuing secret criminal orders in and out of the prison. So it makes sense to me that you'd have a force field and a communications blackout screen. But then later on, they ignore this. 
because when Kirk is in the chamber of horrors, he flips open his communicator and that's like treated as a threat by Dr. Adams. So why, if you've got your security communications blackout screen up, do you care if he's got his communicator there? Right. The thing I would, I can kind of headcanon that saying, well, um, what actually happened the first time he tried to use it is it wasn't yet on the system. It wasn't yet an authorized device, but he then authorized it. And so later, Kirk could be in communication with the Enterprise at will. And that makes sense. Like if you're in a prison and you had a similar blackout thing, but you bring in an official, you could authorize his device so he can have communication when he needs to. That's true. The other thing was in the scene where we get our first mind meld, uh, Spock doesn't use the my mind to your mind language. That hasn't been created yet. But not only is Van Gelder's acting really good in this, but so is Leonard Nimoy's. Mm -hmm. Leonard Nimoy gets to show real emotion in the mind meld. There's this kind of poetic, it doesn't really make linear sense, but there's this kind of poetic series of words that Van Gelder is saying. It's like life, death, loneliness. And after each one, Leonard Nimoy is like, yes. So it's like life, yes, death, yes, loneliness, yes. And it's really fascinating to watch Leonard Nimoy emote that much in the Spock role. He's mm. clearly into this the emotional impact of this sequence of thoughts he's getting. Yeah, that was very good. Did Leonard Nimoy getting to show his uh, uh his range there? Good, awesome. We'll wrap things up there. That was a great episode. So let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create secrets of Star Trek, including Jack B, David H, Mark. Barb G and David F, their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What did you think of Dagger of the Mind's Eye? Uh, you can let us know by commenting. <laughs> Dagger of the Mind. Dagger of the Mind. <laughs> <laughs> The Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Maybe, yes, is which is thinking. the Star Trek novel that is no... Star Wars. Star Wars. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to move on. Uh, you can f- give us feedback on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Media, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. Get me out of here, Scotty. Before I say something else, we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing... Wait for it. Star Trek V. Oh, yes, it is time. Ooh, <laughs> the search for God. <laughs> this is the one you've been waiting for, folks. Let all your friends know. This is going to be <laughs> fun to listen to, oh, not as man. much fun for us to watch. <laughs> Until next time, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Dom. Uh, Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Yes. <laughs> I mean, thank you and live long and prosper. <laughs> And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, as Dr. Adam said in his toast, may we never find space so vast, planets so cold, and heart and mind so empty that we cannot fill them with love and warmth.